0: head to airbnb.com slash host.
1: Don't hold anything too tightly. Just wish for it, want it, let it come from the intention of real truth for you, and then let it go.
2: For me, our soul is like, it's
0: unbound, it's limitless, but we will use words to limit ourselves. When people stop believing, that somebody's got your back or Superman's coming. We turn to ourselves and that's where you become empowered. Courageous participation attracts positive things. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow, and this is the Goop Podcast, where we bring together thought leaders, scientists, healers, creatives, and seekers. I'm so grateful to be able to interview these bright minds and share their incredible wisdom with you. And I especially love listening to the conversations that are led by my brilliant co-host and friend, Erica Chitty. Erica is the CEO and co-founder of Loom and she's been a part of the Goop family since the beginning days. We believe that simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. I'll let Erica fill you in on her guest today.
1: My guest today is Tara Brock. Tara is a clinical psychologist spiritual meditation teacher, and the best-selling author of Radical Acceptance, True Refuge, and my favorite, Radical Compassion. Tara's new book is called Trusting the Gold, Uncovering Your Natural Goodness. In it, she explores how our lives shift when we soften to the world around us. And as she puts it, trust that everything and every feeling belongs. I've loved her work for a long time and her guided meditations and weekly online satsang talks have helped me through many a dark moment. Today, we talk about how to recognize the gold around us and when we're living out of alignment. She expands on rain, an acronym that I often use for mindfulness and compassion, and she shares how we can cultivate a meditation practice that's sustainable and how to deepen our sense of compassion as we move through difficult times. I'm so excited to share this conversation with all of you. Let's get to my chat with Tara Brock.
3: I've read a few different places or heard you talk about this, but kind of your emanation point was from a place of deep suffering. And during your time as a young adult, you referred to yourself being in something that you described as a trance of unworthiness. And I'd, I'd love to hear you say more about that.
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, I was in college when I got introduced and I was a a social activist. I was really, you know, passionate and fervent and, you know, on weekends I'd be at rallies and meetings and this and that. And then on Tuesday nights I'd be in my yoga class where we were learning meditation and it was peaceful and loving. And I remember at one point after a meditation class, walking out and it was like spring night and the trees were fragrant and I stopped under a tree and it was like my body and my mind were in the same place at the same time and that just hadn't happened and it really hit me Erica that all these things we're fighting for we're not going to come from the anger and hatred and bad other you know and so on it really needed to come from that sense of feeling a part of the world and At the same time, I was struggling with not just being, you know, bad guys out there, but I was struggling with making myself wrong all the time, you know, and that's where a trance of unworthiness. A friend of mine told me how she was becoming her own best friend, and it was so clear. I was the exact opposite. I mean, I had the harshest inner critic that was on my case. I weighed too much, and I was not good in relationships, and I was not coming through as a you know, daughter or friend, you know, the whole thing. And so when I moved into a spiritual community, it was really with the sense of I need to make peace with myself. You know, I need to be able to embrace myself and I need to feel a connectedness with this world if I want to be able to help, you know. So that was the entry, as you said, it was that, and I call it the trance of unworthiness. Because if I do, if I'm with a group and I, do a hand raise and say, how many of you think you judge yourself too much? I mean, you know it, that everybody's hand goes up. But people don't always realize how many moments there's some monitoring of how am I doing and feeling like they're falling short. So it could be us doing what we're doing right now. And there'd be some background thing of, well, am I really being authentic or, you know, Am I really speaking to the point or, you know, it's that monitoring. And it keeps us from being spontaneous. You know, it it screws with our nervous system. So we're always stressed. It's fight, flight, freeze all the time when we don't like ourselves.
3: Take what you just said now about this idea of this trance of unworthiness and move to another kind of challenging concept that I was introduced to when I was quite young. When I was 19, I went on my first Vipassana retreat and really got my first introduction to Buddhism and, you know, and and insight work. And two things I heard at that Vipassana that I still hold with me very closely to this day was that the teacher introduced us to samsara and this idea of the wheel of suffering. And Described life as exquisitely painful. And then went on to share that, you know, regardless of what our goals are, whatever we think we want to do, like the goal can be fixed, but the path to get to that goal is going to be fluid. It's going to be like being in a river and going over rocks and moving over all these different, you know, small but organic obstacles in the way, on the way to. To that goal that you're, you're you're working towards. And so, you know, I've sat and continue to sit with this idea that life is exquisitely painful. And, you know, it brings me to want to ask you about RAIN, which for those that aren't familiar, is this framework that you created, that stands for recognize, allow, investigate and nurture. And I'd really love for you to speak about rain and how it can help anyone really be more present or work through
2: huge
3: feelings like exquisite pain and suffering and unworthiness.
2: Rain is basically mindfulness and compassion. It's there's nothing new about rain. What makes rain really useful is that when we get triggered, when we're stuck, you know, if somebody's stuck in anxiety or self-hatred or anger, we are… it's a limbic hijack, you know, we are We are caught and those are the moments we completely forget our way back home. That's when we need kind of already to have, okay, here's what I'm going to do, I'm going to pause right here. I call it the sacred art of pausing because everything comes out of this capacity just to stop for a moment. Those, those, It just opens up some choice. So we pause. And then the R of RAIN is to recognize what's going on. And in the moment, and you know this from your training in Vipassana and insight meditation, if you can name something, it doesn't trap you as much. And, and now they can actually show you with the scans of the brain how when you're naming something, it starts lighting up the frontal cortex and you've got more integration going, you're not so hijacked you know? So the R of RAIN is you just notice what's happening, okay? Anxiety, let's say. And just say it, you know, anxious. And then the A of RAIN is allow. And allow means instead of ignoring it or fixing it or judging it, you just let be for a moment. It's the one thing we never do, you know? Just let it be. I sometimes say, this belongs. And it's kind of like, these are waves in the ocean, they're here right now, they belong. Doesn't mean I have to like them, but by just letting them be there, again, you can see that the whole body-mind starts opening up some. We're just not so trapped, you know? Mm. Mm. And then the eye of rain is investigate. And investigate isn't really... Cognitive or intellectual—that's the mistake that's made because we can spend decades investigating with our minds. (laughs) Investigate is somatic, and your issues are in your tissues. And the grounds of, of learning mindfulness is to come into this body, and it takes practice and courage. And if we've been traumatized, it takes support. We can't do it right away, but to start investigating how the experience is felt in the body is the, you know, eye of rain. And when we come into our body, then we can nurture. And there's this really cool saying from an evolutionary psychologist that we're not survival of the fittest, we're survival of the nurtured. Mm
3: -hmm.
2: We are social creatures. We need nurturing. We need to be able to hold ourselves with care. We need to hold each other with care. I often think of meditation as a kind of spiritual reparenting where you mm. know if you think of what does a child need they need to be seen you know to be recognized understood and they need to be loved and that's that's the attention we're bringing to ourselves mindfulness and compassion so when i teach nurturing i mean if you're listening right now just to put your hand on your heart with a, a light touch and actually sense okay i'm offering care and We don't have a relationship of kindness with ourselves usually. And it's radical to even for a moment, you know, say, it's okay, sweetheart. Or, you know, I'm here, I'm not leaving. Or if we're scared to say, well, thank you for trying to protect me, but I'm okay right now. Mm. So that's nurturing. And then the final part of rain, I call this after the rain, because it's like a real rain when it falls that we we really get the blossoming, the fruits afterwards, is when we just notice, okay, what's the quality of presence right now? Mm -hmm. And what we see is we started RAIN feeling like a stuck self, like a self that's beleaguered and failing and scared or whatever it was. And at the end, we're more resting in a kind of tender awareness. We're more the compassionate space that's holding the self like we're the ocean cradling the waves. And that shift is it. That's the freedom shift, you know. That's when we are really unstuck. So when you talked about, and you said it, so with it's very lucid the way you, you put it, and I really like this, that, you know, we get caught on that wheel of suffering because we are identified as a separate self. And as long as we think we're separate, as long as I'm sitting here with you and my sense of identity is that we are separate, different, in our own little bubbles. There's going to be some fear, some wanting of either approval or wanting to get something. Some, you know, we humans have wants and fears when we feel separate. That's suffering. But in the moments I, I can feel your energy and sense, oh, the sentience in you and the sentience in me, you know, that. what's looking out through your eyes and through my eyes, it's the same awareness. What that these heart, this heart space is the same tenderness, then the fear, you know, just naming it helps, you know, the fear just starts fading because I'm no longer identified separately. So that's after the rain, where we sense more the field that we belong to.
0: Let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners. This year, we launched a new goop travel series called The Goop List. I wanted a way to share annually what I found to be the best of the best, from my favorite places to stay in Italy to a truly special spa in Costa Rica. If you are inspired to travel more this year, perhaps because you perused our recommendations on the Goop list, hosting on Airbnb is excellent for people who frequently travel. The beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Alongside frequent travelers, Airbnb is also great for those who have extra space or an in-law suite that isn't always being used. If you've stayed at an Airbnb before, you know the unique experience it offers. Now you can share that same experience with others while earning some extra income. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com host. Okay, let's get back to the conversation
3: you touched on this idea of moving away from the eye in RAIN, investigating being this kind of analytical or academic or intellectual, you know, digging or, or, yeah. or, or search, you know, and putting it more into a somatic context, into a body-based context, you know, really brings me to think about this kind of year of immobilization we've all been in. Yeah. And as we move through or into or consider reentry wherever anyone is on that spectrum, how can we bring this quality of investigating or this the, the type of investigative quality that you're speaking to to our process of reentry? and to acclimating after so much restriction and, and and this kind of pending immobilization because for many of us we didn't know when it was really going to be over and for some of us it's it's not right. you know for many people around the world
2: yeah it's it's really interesting as i'm talking to people about re-entry the different ways people are experiencing it i mean some of us introverts are totally terrified about having to yeah mwah, yeah me
3: <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. Same.
2: it's like you know i, I it didn't, didn't mind being stuck at home for you know but on the other hand i love humans and i love hugging and so on it me just too. The, it just there's social anxiety and and i just mm. think we need to name it that most of us are scared of each other You know, we love each other, we want to connect with each other, but we're scared. We're scared of being rejected. We're scared someone will see that we're not worthy. We're scared we're not going to function well. So I think that's part of what's coming up in the re-entry is a self-consciousness that's really acute. You know, that's Mm -hmm. really acute. I think a lot of people—it's—it's it's not done. This pandemic, and it's not just the pandemic. It's been mo- multiple, really crises. You know, the the resurfacing in such a virulent way of white supremacy—it's been horrific. You know, and the polarization that's going on in the country is really horrible. The the impact—I have so many friends that you know people of color, BIPOC people, that this thing didn't just come and go. It really, really was devastating to finances. People lost a lot of loved ones. So people are are reentering with grief, with loss, with pain. So not a light time. So I'm bringing all that up to say we need to be really kind with our hearts as we move forward and compassionate. You know, I wrote a book, Radical Compassion, and there's two kinds of compassion. And one, one element of it is a, a real accepting, receptive tenderness to what comes up in us. And the other is kind of a, a courageous, brave part of compassion, where we support ourselves in moving forward, and we take and protect ourselves where there's danger, protect others, and so on. And we need both of those as we go forward. So what I've been encouraging people is if there's places you get stuck as you're going back out in the world, places where you feel you're caught in judging yourself or judging others, where you're feeling self-conscious and like you're not connecting or you're not feeling good about yourself in it, to use that as the material for doing some rain on the sidelines it really makes a difference to practice on the sidelines. It's like any sport. If you, if you practice on the sidelines, you know your tennis serve or you know, your swing or whatever it is, your brain remembers it more. So if you take rain and you bring it to judgment, I mean, I know many people now that are kind of caught in real conflicts and tensions in their own family because there's been so much pressure you know, over the last year and a half. So then you can do rain on blame, which is really, really useful where you, you know, it's like for one woman, you know, with her partner, it was really hard because they had two kids. He seemed, they're both working, they're both working online. And yet he seemed to assume that she was going to do all the homeschooling plus work, you know, and it was one of those really imbalanced things. And so she was really upset with him. And so what you do with rain on Blame and what she did was she felt her anger. You know, she felt how upset she was. Mm Anger is intelligent. You don't say no to it. You just recognize it and let it be there, allow it. And then when she started investigating, underneath the anger was a feeling of real hurt. Like, well, don't you care about me enough to want my life to be working out too? And, and she felt grief. And and mm-hmm. when she got in touch with that grief, she was able to put her hand on her own heart and just hold a place of, okay, this hurts, and and send her self-kindness. And it was a little bit hard because she felt so small. So she also imagined, she has a, a a best friend, that she also imagined her friend's love coming in because it really helps mm-hmm. to bring other people's care in. And that helped her reconnect with a kind of sense of strength and presence and she talked to him and she she told him that she was hurt and he confessed to her how scared he was about his job and how it kind of blinded him he kept feeling kind of workaholic because he was so afraid he was going to lose his position and it wasn't like there was a right or a wrong but it allowed for more intimacy because she had taken the time To connect inwardly with her own vulnerability and bring some self care. And -hmm. and that's the power of it. It's not, we don't do rain so we make other people right or to make ourselves right. It's just to bring us back to our clarity and our centeredness and our strength and our more open hearted place too. And I think what you're saying
3: really resonates for so many different reasons, but I think what it really brings up for me is this idea of connecting to the self. And I think what you just shared around using RAIN isn't about you making the other person wrong. It's about gently taking inventory to understand what is the next thing I need to do from here and to be able to do that in a way that does less harm to yourself and the person that you're in front of or a situation that you find yourself inside of and you know at the beginning of our conversation you shared just very briefly that you know if you've had trauma it might take you a little bit longer to develop a practice a practice of any kind and i'm really curious what you feel or or what you would even recommend given the fact that this immobilization that we just experience is as a result of a collective contemporaneous trauma. Mm-hmm. And so how tools like rain that already in the world that we were in before the pandemic and before everything changed uh, were hard to contact because everything is catalytic and we're busy and there isn't time to sit inside of what's going on. But now that we can all identify with trauma, whether we could previously or not, you know, how, how can we approach these tools? How do we, how do we build compassion for ourselves? And, and and how do we cultivate a practice that's actually sustainable?
2: I think that, many people in in exploring rain need to start with the end of rain in other words you need to nurture ahead of rain mm. and what that does is if you start nurturing ahead of rain then you can actually do the full rain process in a much more deep way i know many people that are working with trauma. And what happens is sometimes you'll start meditating and you get what uh, Chris Germer, uh, who teaches about self compassion, calls backdraft, which is it's kind of like, you know, if there's a fire and you open the door, how it just flows out. Well, with trauma, sometimes you start opening the door by paying deeper attention and huge amounts of pain from the past can come up. So we need to have a way when that happens, uh, when we get really hijacked by trauma, to reintegrate, to come back. And nurturing is the way. We need something that helps us feel safe and loved. And each person, Erica, has a different way. We have to, so everybody has to experiment. Like if I, if you were telling me, well, here's how my trauma shows up, and what I would ask you is, when is it that you do feel safe? Like what does help you to feel more safety or more love in your life? And you might say, well, this particular person helps me feel safe. Or if I go to this particular place or I lean on that tree and, or I lie on the ground and you'll tell me something that even a little bit helps. And then I would design a practice with you that strengthens that pathway. Because all we need is a tendril towards some sense of refuge, a tendril. And we can cultivate it. That's the the power of neuroplasticity, you know, is that it's amazing what's possible. But we need to, it's like whatever you practice gets stronger. And if you, let's say what your tendril is, is that you need to feel... A grandparent forgiving you and understanding your imperfections. Let's say it's that. And when I sense my grandparent there and they're looking at me with that look, I feel like I'm covered, and I'm okay. Well, then that's your meditation a lot. And you go back to it and you feel in your body that washing through of oh, letting go a little bit until it gets stronger and stronger. And then when you do rain, then when you get triggered, You can start saying, okay, recognize, allow, investigate, and then use that image and that felt sense and maybe a touch that goes with it to anchor yourself so that you can really nurture. I think just to
3: kind of flow with what you're saying as well, it's almost, you know, you're encouraging people to seek and look for pleasure both in the material world and in their past and be able to pull those things at the ready you know into their into their meditation practice and, and i think that's not something that we that we talk about you know enough because i think people outside of the, kind of the meditation world might have this idea that you need to have a certain you know deity or or, or guru or something like that as you know as that emanation point for you or that point of relaxation or pleasure or an association that makes you feel good or comfortable. But I think it's really beautiful and accessible to hear that it can be your grandparent and how they make you
2: feel. Or, or your dog. your dog. Yes. 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 I, and what, when I do hand raises, more people have their dog than... <laughs> I mean, they are such lovers, you know? It's like, we can let that in and we're not very good at letting in love. So it's from wherever we can do it. I mean, and I find that I keep experimenting and I've more and more for me, I have this access with trees. You know, I I develop a relationship with trees. I have this tree slash plant right in my my office. I actually communicate with it. I feel like it, I care for it. I love it. It appreciates it. You know, there's some energetic resonance that, starts to create a sense of safety and connection. So it's not just any pleasure in the world, it's pleasures that go deep enough to give us a sense of belonging. And that, you know, the suffering is because we forget our belonging to one another. We just forget, we're in that separateness. So what helps you feel belonging is such a powerful question.
3: And I also have a, you know, a relationship with my plants and and also just you know recently just with the sky just like the actual wonder of the sky just the mm. sunrise the sunset and how how like profoundly exquisitely beautiful it is and I feel a sense of belonging with the sky and then through the sky I feel a sense of belonging with just everything that is underneath it which is just humanity and you know the earth. And so I really, I really hear that. And I think it's been one of the offerings of the past year, as much as it has been very painful and full of grief and loss and restriction is this, you know, return to some simplicity, like Mm -hmm. really being able to find Mm -hmm. just these, these small things or these huge complex phenomenon, phenomena like the sky, to just become reacquainted with that I had fallen out of connection with, with everything that urban life kind of forces you to do. So I really hear that.
2: And you're saying it beautifully that it is simplicity in the sense that we're going back to the elements of nature. We are stardust. We come from this universe and it reminds us that we belong. So, you know, there's one master who saw a woman in a marketplace and she was very grim and looking down and selling stuff from her table. And she said, I don't, she said to him, I don't know how to get out of, you know, I'm really stuck. He said, look at the sky. Just look at the sky. Mm -hmm. Just looking it's like there's a larger world and then there's that wonder I mean it's such a mystery anyone that thinks they know what's really going on in this world is deluding themselves it's just all enshrouded in mystery so we can get back in touch with that wonder and something we get humbled in a healthy way where we just know we belong to it all
3: I want to talk about trusting the gold your new book and getting back in touch with our own goodness, getting back in touch with that golden part of ourselves, which I think is such a right on time (laughs) sense of, of being to, or state of being to be exploring, because I think so many of us at different stages over the past year and before that, maybe have abandoned that just that discovery process or even beyond the discovery if you found it almost losing belief in its in its in its power or its 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 worthiness and so i'd love to hear you talk a little bit about what's in trusting the gold and, and and what you really are hoping for people to kind of take away from it
2: yeah. Well, the title comes from a, a story that I have loved for ages and ages. It took, take, took place in the in Thailand, where there was this statue of the Buddha that was very plain. Not It was huge, but really not very attractive. But people loved it for centuries. It just had staying power through different armies and storms and this and that. And uh, one year, there was a big drought. It was in the 1950s. And it started cracking. It was just plaster clay thing, it started cracking. And when the monks shone a light inside one of the cracks, what beam back was the, really the glow of gold. And they, what they mm. thought was a plaster clay Buddha was really the largest, most luminous, solid gold Buddha in all of Southeast Asia. And the monks believed that the, it had been covered over during difficult times so it wouldn't be stolen or destroyed just like we cover over our own purity during difficult times and difficult societies and with difficult caregivers and so on to protect ourselves. And the suffering, this is the samsara that you were mentioning, is that we think we're the coverings. You know, we think we're this personality, this defended or aggressive person with this addiction and this way of making being successful. We think we're the covering. We forget the gold. You know, we really forget the awareness and the love and the creativity that's very essence-like of our being. Mm-hmm. And really the healing and spiritual path is all about remembering this gold. And not just in a self, but remembering the gold that, that really is shining through all of us. So that we actually get to move through the world and I look at you and I see the emanation and you and me and it's the same gold you know and that so that's the freedom and the book is really about how do we come to realizing that in ourselves and each other how do we start really trusting it because our suffering is because we think we're smaller we believe in our limiting beliefs about what's wrong with us and it comes out in society as the hugest distrust that we've borne witness to in most of our lifetimes on a societal level, which creates violence. It, it's not just mistrust. If we don't, if we, if I don't trust someone, they become kind of an object in my eyes. They become a dangerous object, and I'm more inclined to oppress, to disrespect, or to kill them. So we need to trust the gold. We need to see the fundamental value in each other. That's the calling. And so I describe in Trusting the Gold kind of two key pathways that we do this in. And one of them is we start right with where the suffering is. We just courageously face the suffering as we just explored with RAIN just now. It's like face the suffering of of not trusting. And an example of that for me was I got really sick when I was in my 50s, about 15 years ago. And it spiraled down. I ended up in a hospital in the cardiac unit for a while. And I remember just being so I was totally afraid of what was going to happen in the future because I was having to stop teaching. I had to change my life around. It, I was, I was really afraid that I wouldn't be able to function. But I was also really down on myself. Like I caused this in some way, and I'm not being a good patient. You know, it was like I was not trusting the gold. And so I had to do the first pathway of just start right where I am. And the way it worked was I remembered this uh, phrase from a teacher, meet your edge and soften just keep meeting your edge and soften. And that's the same idea as rain. You just keep recognizing and allowing what's here and soften, you know, feel it in your body, nurture. Mm-hmm. So I I had to keep meeting this edge of fear and more fear and then the grief about losing all these capacities. And when I really met my edge and softened around the grief, you know, there was a, a lot of tears, but there was also just this sense of Tenderness and loving life, and realizing that's more who I am—that tender space of loving life—than the personality who is trying to fix herself or be healthy or anything. That was touching the gold, Erica. That those moments, and so that's the first pathway. The second pathway is where we, on purpose, look towards the gold so that we look at each other and we really, on purpose, say, well, what is it that I'm appreciating, you know? I'm appreciating the the lucidity and I can sense your real dedication to waking up and healing and to helping others. And it's like, what do I appreciate? And in the moments of seeing the gold in others or seeing the gold in ourselves, we actually wake it up. In other words, if I'm seeing the gold in myself, it actually helps it to shine. And if I see the gold in you and I let you know what I see, I call it mirroring the gold, it helps to bring it out in you. And so it's a beautiful process, the second pathway of reflecting on what do we love? What do we appreciate?
3: I love the encouragement to meet your edge and soften. When you actually said those words, I found myself just taking a deeper breath and just really feeling myself in my seat and just being like, Okay, yes, that's, because that's, that's every day right now. That's every, that's every hour, you know, meeting your edge is going to the store. Now it's, (laughs) it's getting on a plane for some, it's being out in a group of more than five people, you know, and I think, I think as humans, especially right now, there's this idea of, not even wanting to meet the edge to avoid the edge and then if you do have to be in a situation where you need to meet the edge you meet the edge and harden mm. in order to prepare for the next thing that's going to happen and so again you know as you said earlier on in our conversation you know when you name when you name the challenge or you name the discomfort you come out of that fight or flight and you come into something more manageable or, or, or more understandable. And I think you kind of bringing back the words of your teacher, that idea of like meeting your edge and softening, just that idea of softening, I think is creating space. It's, 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 it's like a really tangible tool that you can just, Start to to bring in, and and it's interesting. I think too, what you brought forward about rain on the sidelines. You know, it's e- even that that sentence from your teacher, like meet your edge and soften, is you know an iteration of rain on the sidelines, right? Because you're you know that you're you're meeting something challenging, but you are encouraging yourself to to act in the opposite way. So there's just there's a lot there that's really containing.
2: Well, you actually caught on a key thing, which is you can do rain and take a half an hour with it and have it be a very deep therapeutic spiritual experience, but you can also do a light rain. And that in any given moment, just as you said, just a little reminder, like meet your edge and soften is a light rain on the spot. Mm. So, mm. And, th- and this is what we need. We need ways on the spot to kind of realize, okay, I'm a little stuck right now. Just a little inner coaching that helps us to be a little more present and a little more open. And that's a really powerful little mantra. I mean, there's a lot of mantras. Sometimes I'll just whisper to myself, just to trust the gold has become a, a mantra. Because when I say that, first it shines a light on how I'm not trusting the gold, How And often it takes the shape of a kind of cynicism or grimness or, you know, it's not always really blatant, but it's just some hard-heartedness. And then, so if I say, trust the gold, and I even just say it again, I'll just say, just trust the gold, I get more sincere. It's like Mm -hmm. I I start inhabiting authenticity more, which is really, feels good. (laughs) (laughs) But it's one of those quick ones. It's like just, so it's like, that's the invitation, find, the few words are, and also for me, if I just, you know, lightly touch my heart, there's something, I, there's some coming back home again that can happen.
3: You know, when I think about coming back home, I do think about my body and I think about my black body and I think about my female body. And when I think about this idea of our inherent goodness, this idea of, Seeing that in one another, it brings me to think and and to feel that it's important to name that, you know, as someone inhabiting a Black body in a culture and in a country, a world that doesn't see my body as valuable as a body that is a white body trying to utilize tools like rain or trying to trust the gold is not as easy. And I think when I think about folks that are not BIPOC, that are interacting with your work and and with trusting the gold, you know, how do we not move into, and when I say we, I'm removing myself in the sense, how do non-BIPOC people utilize a tool like RAIN or look to begin to start trusting the gold without bypassing what the reality of our lived experiences?
2: So, first of all, I want to thank you. This question means the world to me. You know, it really touches me. I think of Toni Morrison saying that to be in America means being white. Everybody else has to hyphenate you know, it's mm. just, it's so deep. And whenever there's a racial caste system, and we have it so horribly here, it means that there isn't trust, there's not seeing gold. And it doesn't, you know, if you're in the superior status, it's like you you don't know you're not seeing it until you start waking up. you You just, don't realize you're not looking at other beings as yourself. You just don't know it until you start waking up. And for black-bodied people, it's like, it's so dangerous to be black in this country. It's so violent in this country that fight, flight, freeze is like, it's very hard to get out of the grip of just feeling bodily threatened. So, and I speak not for black people but from what my black friends tell me and what I read, you know, as I speak as a white person just trying to get my arms around it. So I think one of the tasks of white people, and it's not just to be good people but it's to wake up and be free, it's for their own healing as well as the healing of this world, is to bring the practice of RAIN very close in to, their, to examine their own ways of creating separation and to try to feel into the experience of others. Rain isn't just, I'm bringing rain to my experience. I can also sit here and go and, and look at you and say, okay, I'm rec- here's what I'm recognizing, here's what I'm sensing, and here's what I'm allowing and making space for, and actually try to somatically investigate, so what might life be like for you? And I think of Ruby Sales, who's one of my heroines. Who's you like her too? <laughs> yeah.
3: Love, love,
2: love, love. Yeah, Ruby Sales is awesome, and she's an she's a black elder, spiritual leader person. And one of her my favorite stories that she tells is how she kind of deepened her her way of social activism. So Ruby Sales's really deep inquiry was, where does it hurt? And that's what she was asking. Where does it hurt? And then she'd look deeply to really sense what was true about the other person beyond their coverings, you know, what their heart was really living with. And she did it f- for white people. White people need to do it for black people. You know women need to do it for men. We need if we can't bridge the separations, we can't be free. So I think that's part of our, what we need to be dedicated to. And it's certainly part of my practice, just an ongoing examination because I cannot truly touch happiness if I have any person as other, in anybody that's not equal. It's like mm. any inequality means we can't see the gold
3: mm.
2: because the gold mm. is our shared field of heart and luminosity and awareness. Yeah, thank you for that. I really appreciate just, yeah, that's really beautiful
3: and supportive. Kind of the last question I wanna ask you, just thinking about this idea of awareness, how can we bring more awareness into our bodies? How can we become more embodied? Because I think for me over the years, not feeling a sense of connection to my physical body has made it easier for me to do more harm in my life. Mm -hmm. And when I've had pain, physical pain, somehow physical pain has allowed me to connect to my body in a more intentional way. And before having that as as an indicator or almost as like a force function, it was harder for me to contact my body, even in my meditation practice over the years. And so I think embodiment is so key. And I'm really curious how you would support people or what you would recommend to cultivate embodiment before it's, I would say almost forced on you, you know, Mm -hmm. like coming to a place of embodiment from a place of choosing as opposed to a place of, you know, summoning, you know, like now this is what you are now. This is your lived experience in your body. And now you have to learn to understand your body through a pain framework. Is there a way to connect with your body and to be more embodied from a from a well framework, from a place of well-being.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, you know, it's a, it keeps on stunning me, but we're really a, a dissociated culture. Like, we are a PTSD culture, and that means that most of us are living in a virtual world. And it's it's the rarity to really hang out in our bodies. It's, it's not our fault. It's just the response when bodies are really uncomfortable, when there's feelings of, I can't, this is too much to handle feelings. And, and many of us had that, whether it's through emotional trauma or physical trauma or just the energy of the society. It's like we shift into the control tower up in our brain, you know. So we, we move around in that. So this is really for all of us, your question, Erica, Look. Like, how do we deepen our commitment to coming back here and really inhabiting this living body? Because when we don't, it's like you said, we lose our capacity for full compassion. You have to feel things to have compassion. We lose our heart. I mean, we can't, you can't have a felt sense of intimacy if you're not in your body. We lose our power because our power center, whether you believe in chakras and the the hora and the navel area, our power comes from being centered in our body, you know. We lose our sensuality and all that aliveness and creativity. We lose a basic kind of intel, intuitive intelligence. So there's a lot of loss. And so I think the first piece is to forgive that we leave and to want to come back. Mm-hmm to have it as an intention, you know, that we really forgive how much dissociation there is because we're trying to take care of ourselves. It's our way of protecting ourselves. And then to want to come back and then seek to do it gently with compassion, but with some agency. Again, compassion includes agency, that we bring a willingness and then let's talk about how. Because I keep thinking of this story that I've heard over the years of a sage who people would travel great distances to get answers to their biggest problems and he'd swear them to silence and sit. they'd do some meditating and then he'd say, I'm going to tell you one secret and you have to keep quiet about it. And he'd say, what are you unwilling to feel? Mm. And that's the that's a question for us. It's like in this moment what am I pulling away from? What is hard to accept? What am I unwilling to feel? And often there's just like a an amorphous squeeze, like an existential fear right here in the heart, or a tightness in our throat, or a, a sense in our belly like something bad's gonna happen. But there so that's the beginning of just noticing what we might be pulling away from. And then there's daily practice, and the daily practice of mindfulness, of just even if we can only take five minutes, and I I like to say it that way because when my son was born uh, 35 years ago, you know, I'd had a daily practice for a long time, but because I started in in my, you know, like you pretty much, 19 or 20, but when he was born, it got my rhythm got off. He was crying a lot at night and so on. And I remember finally realizing, wait a minute, I need my practice back to be, you know, like half sane and so on, to get back my sense of humor, everything. So I said, I'm going to practice every day, no matter what. This was, you know, 35 years ago, and I've done it, but I had had a back door. And this is what I want to invite you all to know is that it can be for as long or short as you need. It could be standing up or lying down or sitting, but it's a dedicated time of coming back home to yourself. As best you can that's mindfulness it's just notice what's happening in the moment and see if you can let it be feel your breath, listen to the sound feel your it's one of my friends say you put your tush on the cushion and you take what you get you know it's like whatever happens is okay and you know Erica sometimes when he was really young, I 'd be at the end of the day and I 'd sit you know, sit in front of my altar. I had an altar at that time, you know, and I'd sit on the floor and, you know, I'd take, breathe for about two minutes, say a prayer for the world, and that was it. Mostly it's longer, but it really helps. Life likes rhythms, you know, nature likes rhythms. Just every day, take some time with the intention of coming home to yourself. Let the breath be a kind of pathway of homecoming, and if the breath doesn't work, listen to sounds, or have a a loving-kindness mantra, but take some time. And to get back into our bodies, it really helps to each time do a little bit of a body scan where you just move the attention through the body just to get in the habit of moving the awareness back into our body. Gradually, it'll happen if our willingness is there.
1: Thanks for tuning in to my chat with Tara Brock. Her new book, Trusting the Gold, is out now. It's beautiful, and I highly recommend you read it and share the messages from it with others in your life, and visit her website for her meditations and weekly talks.
0: Thanks for tuning in. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. I hope you'll listen, follow, rate, and review all of our episodes, which are available for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Odyssey, or wherever you get your podcasts.